This is episode 159 of IDRA Class Notes. So there's this incredibly disparate impact on African-American and Latino students, even in grades pre-K all the way up to grades 12. You often see brown and black students funneled out of the classroom, out of the learning environment, and into these other alternative environments or no learning environment at all. But in spite of these challenges, we still have many Latino and African-American students pushing through these systemic barriers. So these are students who are excelling in spite of the challenges that they face. Good morning. I'm Lori Posner, Director of Civic Engagement at IDRA, and I'm here with David Inojosa, National Director of Policy at IDRA and Director of the IDRA South Central Collaborative for Equity. Good morning, David. Good morning, Lori. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here with me to talk about Fisher v. UT Austin. This is a case that the Supreme Court of the United States heard on December 9th. It's called Fisher 2, referred to as Fisher 2, because it's for the the second time that this uh, case went to court. Heard oral argument reviewing the constitutionality of the consideration of race as one factor in UT undergraduate admissions policy. So just to get started, David, if you might tell us a bit about the background of this case, who are the parties and what is at stake? So in 2009, two white female plaintiffs who were just graduating from high school in Texas, they were denied admission into the University of Texas at Austin. They had not ranked in the top 10% in their class, so they weren't automatically admitted pursuant to a state law Mm -hmm. that allows high school students graduating in the top 10% of their class and meeting certain basic curriculum requirements to be admitted automatically to any state university. They did not rank in the top 10%, so they had to apply along with Uh, thousands of other students for the few non-top 10% students slots that were uh, still available. They challenged, uh, and this lawsuit, it's it's important to recognize that this lawsuit is not just these two students, it wasn't just these two students, but it was supported by the Project Unfair representation, who has a, with Edward Bloom, they have a long history of challenging uh, diversity and opportunity for minorities in America in many different areas, including education and voting. And so they challenged the University of Texas at Austin's decision to include race in 2004-2005 as one of many other factors in the admissions process. UT had done a study, they had uh, done a survey of students, reflections and campus diversity on where it was headed on their role as a flagship university in Texas on uh, building future leaders and opening doors, you know, to all qualified students and felt that they weren't getting the diversity that they needed at that time. And so they added race as one of several factors. Plaintiff Fisher and Plaintiff Michaelowitz at the time had argued that UT's decision to use race discriminated against her in violation of the 14th Amendment equal protection rights and her rights under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And she essentially said that UT had enough African-American and Latino students coming in through the race-neutral top 10% plan. They didn't need to use race and that somehow she was more qualified or they were more qualified than the other African-American and Latino students. I will add that Rachel Michaelowitz later on dropped out of the lawsuit for unknown reasons, 
at least to this speaker here. But Plaintiff Fisher uh, continued her lawsuit supported by the Project on Fair Representation. What do we know about admissions of African-American and Latino students and their representation at UT Austin in general? Well, we know that they had fallen following this decision known as the Hopwood decision in 1996 that intimated that the use of race was wholly disallowed under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It was a decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, not the U.S. Supreme Court. They denied the position of the university that uh, diversity is a compelling interest, uh, despite a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in this case known as Bakke versus UC Regents, uh, where Justice Powell had articulated uh, diversity as a compelling interest for including racial diversity as a compelling interest for uh, universities uh, to pursue. With that background, the diversity of African-American and Latino students had plummeted following the Hopwood decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the state of Texas passed the top 10%, which was race neutral. Then the university thereafter, you know, seven years later, after seeing not much progress made at all, Uh, for these two student groups in admissions outside of the top 10% decided to use race at that time. So my understanding, correct me if this is wrong, but that race is one of a number of factors in in a holistic kind of admissions policy. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's a couple of essays. There's, of course, the SAT and grade point average that are considered as well. There are a number of different factors, and then among those factors are also special circumstances. Race plays one of those seven special circumstances. So it is a factor of a factor of a factor. It's not a controlling factor. No one is getting in because of their race. They're getting in because perhaps of the race, the way race plays a role in impacting other factors. But There is no Latino, no African-American at the University of Texas who got in because they are brown or black. Now, you had filed um, on behalf of IDRA an amicus brief. Um, What, just in a nutshell, is IDRA's position in in that brief? So we wanted to bring the context of what's happening in pre-K to grade 12 schooling really matters. You know, this is a case about opportunity. This is a case about diversity. And you can't ignore our public education schooling system. There remain many systemic challenges that we identified in our brief, such as under-resourced schools. So the wealthiest districts in Texas are a lot wider than the poorest school districts in Texas. And that's purely a result of Texas's decision to use property taxes as the chief vehicle and knowing that there's many segregated communities along race and socioeconomic status, that's the result that you have. You know, you have poor communities with 90% Latino versus the wealthiest communities that have, you know, less than 25, 30% of Latino students. And we also address the issue of student discipline. So there's this incredibly disparate impact on African-American and Latino students, even in grades uh, pre-K all the way up to grades 12, uh, whether it's referrals to disciplinary alternative education programs, whether there's suspension rates, whether there's expulsion rates, you often see brown and black students 
funneled out of the classroom, out of the learning environment, and into these other alternative environments or no learning environment at all. And we also address the issue of student mobility. Uh, So student mobility, when you're having to move from one school to another, oftentimes what the research showed that we cited uh, shows white students often move from one district to another school district, often because they've climbed the ladder on with respect to socioeconomic means, but brown and black students are often moving from one school to another uh, within a district, within one poor community to another poor community. And so they still are not able to access the great resources that they need, going back to you know the under-resourced schools that uh, many communities of color have. Uh, and then there's also the disparate impact and effect of attrition and dropout rates with African-American and Latino students having much higher uh, dropout and attrition rates. And when you put all of this together, it just shows a very bleak picture you know, facing. These are systemic challenges that haven't been addressed on the policy side, either, you know, oftentimes at the local side, but more so at the state side of things. And it's quite unfortunate. But in spite of these challenges, we still have many Latino and African-American students, you know, pushing through these systemic barriers. And so we have, for example, Latino students who were enrolled into the University of Texas at Austin during the 2009 school year, the same year that Abigail Fisher had applied, they averaged a 12-11 on the SAT compared to Fisher's SAT score of 1180. So not only did they score higher than Fisher, but Fisher's saying, well, you know, these brown students were allowed into UT because of their race, not because of their achievement even if you just look at the SAT score. But what showed even more is that those students who were enrolled at UT with that 1211 SAT score, that was 314 points higher than the Latino peer average statewide. So if you looked at all of the high school graduates in the year 2009 and you look at their SAT scores, or sorry, it was the class of 2008, the same class as Plaintiff Fisher, they were scoring 300 points higher than the Latino peer average. And even African-American students also scored 232 points higher, and whites were 240 points higher. So those whites who were enrolled, the African-Americans and the Latinos, were scoring much higher than their peer averages. So these are students who are excelling in spite of the challenges that they face. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of national attention to this case, you were in D.C. Uh, during the Supreme Court hearing. So what are some of your the impressions that you would share with us from that firsthand view of the case and this hearing? First of all, the, you know, the court definitely paid a lot more attention to this case and this go-round. And, and this was the second time they were hearing it out following a remand to the Fifth Circuit back in 2012 to 13. And the court was really interested in the facts of the case, which is kind of interesting because normally when you get to the Supreme Court, they're talking more about the law. And so they placed a lot of emphasis on the facts of, okay, well, who are these students admitted through the top 10%? Are they of different characteristics and different traits than students admitted outside of the top 10%? Did UT really sincerely pursue the use of race, or was it a disingenuous attempt? Of course, you know, the record below shows that UT gave a lot of thought. Uh, UT's lawyers were very strong in presenting 
the arguments that showed that they were using very narrowly tailored means to achieve race. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there were some justices who unfortunately had this distorted notion of race. Uh, Justice Scalia, for example, uh, suggested that African-American students admitted to UT were underqualified and should not be admitted to rigorous universities like UT because there was a mismatch between their qualifications and the rigor of uh, the courses offered at UT. He said that in spite of you know the very weak science that supports that kind of research, it was rebutted by a couple of briefs that were filed in the Supreme Court. And then there was Justice Roberts saying, well, you know, if we if you started this in 2004, you're looking at it again every five years. I mean, how much longer are we supposed to look at race? How, how much longer do we have to look at race? And obviously, he hasn't looked outside his ivory tower window to see how relevant race is in America today. What role is that playing in uh, not just educational decisions, but also in education preparation, as we mentioned during our briefing in this case? as well as, you know, in the job market, there's a lot of high-tech industries that are really suffering from the lack of diversity in their, in their employment sectors. And so how do we get there if we don't ensure that doors of opportunity are open to all? Mm-hmm. And what was most striking was that this pushback against the University of Texas at Austin role in their decision in using race as a limited factor because essentially what they wanted to do as justices was to substitute their own judgment of what the University of Texas should do and should not do. And it was more of a policy-related concern as opposed to applying what we call the strict scrutiny standard that the courts should apply. So they were essentially intimating that the University of Texas should have no deference in that judgment, although that they have said otherwise previously in their decisions. So it'll be interesting. We certainly can't know what's going to happen. One other interesting point was about the potential for a remand all the way back down to the district court because there were some justices who had questions about whether or not there was sufficient evidence in the record, and this record was decided without an actual trial in the court below. It was decided on briefs where both parties moved for summary judgment, which basically said we have enough evidence just to prove our case without having to go to trial, and whether or not it might be remanded Mm -hmm. back down. Now, as the court considers this case, and regardless of what ruling ultimately comes down, what can students and families do? What What should they know about, especially for families with students who are now in middle or high school and looking ahead to their own college preparation and enrollment? Well, they they should know, first off, that racial diversity is an incredibly important part of our American system, whether you're looking at educational opportunity, whether you're looking at economic opportunity, whether you're looking at social interaction. Racial diversity is a central part of, you know, not just our past from the dreadful experiences that we know, but also our present and especially our future. So they need to understand, you know, the real value that diversity has for all. And they also need to understand this systemic barriers that apply, but they need to continue to push forward, especially minority students in underserved communities. They need to try and help their students build well-rounded resumes, and they need to advocate for admissions policies 
that look at a well-rounded student, because that's what we're always trying to build, mm-hmm. you know, well-rounded students that might include still, you know, academic achievement in the classroom and on standardized tests, so long as those continue to be considered. But there's also so many different attributes and talents that students bring, and we really need to uh, push upon the universities to continue to include those things, including race, because you can't leave race out of the equation, unfortunately, today. Thank you so much for that. We're going to need to leave it there. I so much appreciate you joining me, David. I'm meeting with David Hinojosa, National Director of Policy at IDRA, Director of the IDRA South Central Collaborative for Equity. Thank you, David. And thank you for listening. This has been an IDRA Class Notes podcast. We encourage your questions and comments at IDRA and appreciate you taking the time to share them with us. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.